get a job. Work hard. And one day you can retire and do the things you want. That's the typical formula for daily life in the modern world. And it works for lots of people. This kind of life is perfect. But it's not for us. And I'm guessing that it's not for you either. I'm David Allen Patali, and I'm Carmen Allen Patali, and together we run the content company Red Platypus. I'm also a published fiction author, and we have two young daughters who keep us on our toes. We've both said no to well-paid jobs in favour of pursuing our creative paths, and we want to walk them with you. Freelancer, digital nomad, artist, creative, self-employed. Whatever you want to call it, if you work for yourself and want to keep it that way, or want to be free from the nine to five and don't know where to start, we want to help. We're going on a journey to speak to committed creatives, people who are all in, who have made highly successful businesses out of their creativity, and ask them how they do it while retaining the magic. Because while we think inspiration is good, we've come to learn that process is vital. Welcome to the Committed Creative Podcast, your toolkit for the creative life you want. Here's to going all in and becoming a committed creative. A couple of weeks ago, I had the absolute pleasure of chatting to the upbeat and motivational Erin Maidley, who is the founder of Perth Makers Market and the recent owner of Perth's Upmarket. Perth Makers Market launched in February 2016 with approximately 75 storeholders and 1,500 public visitors to their first event. Not bad for someone who doesn't come from an events background. Erin describes herself as a rainbow unicorn, someone who loves diving into her creativity and is far from a corporate type with her brightly coloured clothes and bold tattoos. Before starting her markets business, Erin ran her own handmade business called Handmadely, selling both at market stalls and online. But she became frustrated when she would turn up to market stalls that claimed to be focused on selling only locally handmade products to find that adjacent storeholders were selling imported and mass-produced items. So Erin was inspired to create a special marketplace that was for locally made homewares only. Now, she's had more than seven years of experience growing and maintaining her business, and she's a wealth of knowledge who also offers her wisdom through her online coaching services for other creative businesses. Erin had so many golden nuggets of business advice and tips and creative tidbits during this interview, I just cannot wait to share it with you. So let's dive in. So hi, Erin, and welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you on The Committed Creative. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I've actually been um, following you and going to your markets for quite a while now. So it's pretty exciting stuff to see the face behind the brand. So maybe we could just start off a little bit uh, by explaining a little bit about what you do and your business and how you got here. Yes. So um, my company is actually called Market Life Proprietary Limited. So we, we actually became a company last year um, when I switched over from being a sole trader. But I started out um, by creating and launching Perth Makers Market, which is now Perth's largest strictly locally handmade uh, artisan market. And we run six times a year based in Applecross. And I started that in, um, well, I started working on it in 2015 and launched in February of 2016. 
And then um, that's just kind of grown over time. And um, in 2019, I then ended up launching my second business, which is Erin Maidley Consulting, where I help other organisations run their events and do, um, you know, workshops and education and and mentoring a little bit. Um, Just because we were getting approached as Perth Makers Market to help people out with running their events and it just didn't really... um, gel with the brand because people would want events that weren't strictly locally handmade and obviously as Perth Makers Market, that's all we do. Um, and then last year we grew again um, by acquiring Perth Up Market. So um, the previous owner of Perth Up Market was moving back to the eastern states from Perth and so she was looking for a new person to take on the business and I've been a fan of Perth Up Market for a long time um, since before I started running my own market and so since I already run markets and um, I really like what, what it's all about that we we acquired that one so now we have the three businesses that we run but it's all within you know events and markets and supporting creative communities awesome 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 it's so great that you support local as well I love going to your markets because every time there's new people and everything is just so different unique it's often stuff you've never seen before and just to know that you're supporting local businesses from around Perth and WA just Feels really good. Uh, How did you get into the market space? Well, I'm a maker of things. So that's how it all started out. Um, So my story is um, when I was pregnant with my children, I was actually very, very unwell. And I had been working um, at the children's hospital, um, but I had to change what I was doing in my job because I couldn't be on my feet. I had to finish work earlier. I couldn't cook. I couldn't clean. I couldn't yeah, I couldn't be upright for more than five minutes without um, oh healing over. Yeah, it was quite well. Um, and so there's a finite amount of, you know, TV watching you can do and book reading you can do before you start going stir crazy. And I've always been a pretty creative person. So I turned to crafting because that's, you know, what you do. Um, or at least it's what I do anyway. And so um, I started making um, sock toys and um posting photos on social media just through my personal channels and I then started getting asked if I would sell and so I went oh okay well I guess I I could um and then from there I started making and selling products um attending markets and selling online through Etsy I never really treated it as a proper business it was always just a hobby for me but I did sell internationally and 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 across Australia, and um, I found a really fun, fantastic community within markets and the handmade world online. But as a storeholder myself, um, I found a lot of things really frustrating about applying for markets or attending markets. You'd you'd be going to a market and the event was geared as uh, being a handmade artisan market. However, you'd arrive and you'd find you were selling products alongside, like something that I've spent time making myself. I'm selling alongside things that have been manufactured or imported and you can't compete. It's not a level playing field. The pricing is different. You know, why would they buy a handmade toy from me at $50 when, you know, six stalls down there's somebody selling a toy that's, $10 that's been, Mm. you know, made overseas. Um, And so that was a big driver for me starting my own business. I I had gone back to work after having my children. I was working part-time, but I was 
pretty bored in what I was doing. I thought I just wanted a job where you go, you do a bit of admin work, you go home. It turns out that by 11 o'clock in the morning, I'd run out of things to do um, in my job and I was just looking for something else. And so, um, yeah, that's that's how it all kind of came about is looking to fill that gap within the market scene within Perth where you're providing a level playing field for everybody who is attending and then you're attracting that that crowd of people who are genuinely interested in supporting strictly locally handmade um, because we just have so much talent here in, in WA and so, you know, it's, so it's great true. to support them. Mm. So had you had any prior experience in events? No. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so no experience in events, no business background. When I worked um, at the hospital, I worked in emergency management and human resources, so very, very different than what I do now. Um, so my experience came from being a storeholder at markets and then I also volunteered for a little while with um, an organisation called Made on the Left, who are a non-profit market organisation here in Perth. They run um, one, maybe two events a year, but I ran their social media for them for like a six month period and doubled their following at the time. And so I got experience, you know, in the social media marketing side of things. And I had experience being a storeholder. And so I knew as a storeholder what I liked and didn't like. Um, and, you know, I kind of had this idea of what I really wanted to do. Um, and, with where we lo we're located in Applecross here, um, it's a location that I would bring my kids to the playground. And I mm -hmm. thought, oh, this is a really great spot. And I would love to run a market here. At this point in time, I had no business plan. I hadn't spoken to my husband about what I wanted to do. Um, like nothing was written down. I just walked into the gallery that's on site here and I spoke to the, the woman who I bumped into who happened to be the, you know, site coordinator and gallery curator. And I said, oh, do you guys, you know, hire the site out? She said, yeah. And what do you have in mind? And I said, well, I was thinking it's strictly locally handmade market. And she's like, yes, we need to make that happen. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, un unknown to me, um, they'd done this, like, plan for the site of what they wanted to achieve. And somewhere on that plan, one of the ideas was running a market on site. Uh -huh. And so, like, I just walked in and kind of, like, ticked that box for them of, of uh -huh. somebody else coming in and doing it. Um, to be. Yeah. And so I went home and I did a bunch of research. I uh, wrote a business plan. And um, within five months, we had our first event. That's so awesome. So how did it go, the first one? Good. It was a 40-degree day. Um, oh, my goodness. Disgusting. Um, and um, I would have been over the moon if we'd gotten together maybe 50 stalls, but we ended up having about 75. Whoa. And even though it was a 40-degree day, we had um, about 1,500 people attend our wow. launch event. So, um, yeah, it just it kind of exceeded my expectations as to what the first event would look like. And I thought, you know, it would take us a couple of years to get to the point where, you know, it could possibly become my full-time job. And I could – because I was just looking to replace my, you know, part-time three-day-a-week income. Obviously, yeah, yeah. you know – seven years on that's not what has happened but um <laughs> yeah and so it it just it went really really well and it was just so well received by the public and and that was really really exciting for us yeah you were obviously fulfilling a need because I think people love to shop locally and if there's opportunity they're all for it um when you held that first event was there anything that went wrong or did it all <laughs> run smoothly no lots of stuff went wrong so um 
you know, I didn't, I didn't really have staff. So, um, I just roped in all my family to come and help. <laughs> um, so like my sister-in-laws and my dad and my husband and, you know, my mum watched my kids who were two and four at the time. Um, so, you know, just, it was a whole family affair. We had sprinklers that came on that were supposed oh, no. to have been turned off. Um, and obviously being a 40 degree day, you know, that's, that's not ideal. Um, no. and you know, just, just little things like, you know, somebody who's expecting to be on flat ground and they're on a slightly not flat surface. Um, mm. one of the buildings on site here, cause it's all old heritage buildings. Um, there was no air conditioner and so it was really hot. And so you're scrambling to find fans and, mm. um, yeah, so it was just a lot of things along the way or people, um, feeling like they may miss some information and so you're getting calls the day before or um, all of those sorts of things. But um, in spite of all of that and in spite of the heat and the sprinklers and the, um, all of those sorts of things, we, we got through it and, and no one died. And so um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I managed to like, you know, survive that. And so that that was, yeah, it was a massive learning curve though because obviously like my background was in events. I have no business background. I have no any management background. I yeah, so it was just a huge learning curve. It's awesome. I love how um you just went for it, even without having, you know, the prerequisite event training or anything like that. You just you saw an opportunity and went for it. So so cool. And you would have learned so much just in that one event. Okay. Oh yeah, huge amounts of learning that happened. Um, but you know, we, here we are seven years on and as I say, you know, that that's it. I'm still here, I'm still in business, so I've got to be doing something right. Absolutely. So how did you advertise that first event? Was it mainly just through social media? Predominantly through social media. So the biggest thing that I kind of did for that first year is hugely reinvest back in the business. So I didn't pay myself um, and mm -hmm. I did everything myself in-house. So, um, but predominantly through social media marketing, but also, um, you know, writing media releases and reaching out to um to you know the local paper and 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 um you know putting everything on every available online platform that's around because there are a lot of free event listing platforms that you can go on to um but yeah predominantly social media advertising and even now seven years on we see the best return on investment through social media advertising even like both mm. paid and free but um, mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is that um, I just really wanted the first one to be successful. I didn't expect to make money in the first year of my business, which it didn't. And that's fine um, because I wanted to take all of that money and reinvest it back in the business to make sure it was a long-term success and not just a, you know, flash in the pan. Mm, absolutely. So during that year, were you still working a three-day-a-week job as well? Or? I was, yeah. So I still worked three days a week. My kids were two and four. And then in my spare time, I worked on the business. So I stopped doing housework. Um, my husband had to do everything, which is fine. Like he has always been someone who does housework anyway. It just meant that he did even more and he had to learn to cook. Because very early yeah. on in our relationship, I kicked him out of the kitchen and said never again because I I wanted to eat food and not die. So um, <laughs> so he had to learn to do a little bit of cooking because up until that point, I was like I was unwilling to eat what he cooked me. Um, and so, um, yeah, and and I worked late nights and I worked weekends and um, and I worked my regular three day a week job as well. 
I love that you asked your husband to help and that he stepped up to the plate because so often, you know, you might be on a Facebook forum. I know I'm in a few groups and the part like the women are whinging that their husband never helps, but then you're just like, have you actually asked them to help? Because you you need to spell it out for men. They don't get, they can't read your mind. And sometimes I think as women, we, we are terrible at asking for help. And sometimes it just helps if we actually say what we need and yeah I can step up to the plate yeah very much so I mean I think for both of us um you know really early on in our relationship we established that dynamic of like it's not any one person doing any one thing and there are times where he's hugely busy with work and I do more and then there's times where I'm hugely busy with work and he does more so we've always had that flexibility and I think especially because like we also deal with my mental health issues and so there are definitely periods in time where like I'm not capable of doing all of the things because you know my brain's a dumb place to live and so sometimes I just have to go and be in my little hidey hole or you know take a day just for me so I'm not doing all of those house things because otherwise I turn into a crazy person um and so for us that dynamic in our relationship was established early on and I think also because he could see the value of the business and he reviewed all the business plans because you know we weren't going to start something um, without knowing that there was a possibility it could be a success. So because he really believed in it and believed in in me, um, you know, that made an absolutely massive difference. But I think you're right in that women in business are definitely prone to saying, oh, yeah, I'll just do it all myself and not asking the question. But I do also think men need to be more responsible for mm. being more observant of the other people in their lives of going, oh, you look like you're not coping. I should help them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, we should, uh, like, yes, we need to ask. But I also think that there's a very much a dynamic that's been established for a very long time that's hard to break of, women doing all of these domestic things um, and men need to be better about, you know, stepping up to the plate. So true, so true. I agree with you 100%. So you touched on your mental health there. I know as a business owner and I spoke to many other entrepreneurs that sometimes it can be pretty lonely in business and you've come up against a lot of challenges and it's hard to voice them if other people don't know where you're at. What have you struggled with since launching your business? So I actually have a long history of anxiety and depression. I've had two very severe depressive episodes in my life, Um, one when I was in high school and one actually the the year that my husband and I got married and my poor husband had a really steep learning curve on me and mental health because he grew up in an environment where – I think it was just not discussed as much, whereas my mum is a nurse and she worked in a psychiatric facility. So, like, my family dynamic was just a little bit different in that, like, my mum had all of that knowledge and training, whereas my husband, um, he obviously, you know, not that his family isn't supportive or anything, but, like, it just wasn't talked about as much. And so he had to learn a lot really quickly. Um And so I'm now medicated and I have been for a really long time. I go to a therapist all the time and that's just my reality and that's the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. And I think the biggest thing that's been really important for me is making sure I talk really openly about it and I don't hide things. And I, um, you know, also will say to my husband, I'm like, I'm having a bad day, you know, and he's like, is there something going on? I'm like, no, I don't know what it is. I woke up and today I'm just, I'm in a, I'm in a space of life is stupid. Um, and it's not like I ever go to the dark and scary place 
at the moment. It's I, that's my what I refer to my depression as is the dark and scary, um, because we've now learned enough about me of like what my warning signs are and the ways to kind of pull me out of it. But I've really got a fantastic support system and infrastructure around me through my my immediate family, through my in laws, and then also through my friends and my coworkers. So. Um, for me, with mental health and those feelings of isolation and loneliness, it's just making sure that you build those things into place to support yourself and support the others around you as well. And the reality is that pretty much everybody in my office and who works for me, we all kind of deal with mental health issues. And by being as open and transparent about things as I am, it means that if, for example, one of the team members are having a bad day, they know they can come to me and say, hey, I need to take a day. I need to take a mental health day. And we go, yep, sure, no worries. And then I also can say to them, cool, great. Have you got your therapy appointment booked in? Um, have you been talking to your partner and your support systems? Is there something going on that you want to talk about? Um, and, you know, we can build things into place. And sometimes it means, you know, you need to take a whole week off or you need to take a day or it could just be that you need to work adjusted hours um but by by providing those flexible arrangements it means that you're supporting everybody um in the best way possible as well oh i really admire that i wish more bosses could be like you and then we'd probably have a lot healthier workspaces you know because i understand so many people go through mental health issues and being able to talk about them and actually feel like you're in a safe space when you come to work that's that's really a special thing yeah do you have a business mentor or anyone you sort of turn to in terms of challenges within the business that you face yeah i do so i have business mentors and they're based in the eastern states actually i've never met them physically in person wow um so i've actually been working with them for a really long time now and we actually partner with them as well to offer a scholarship program twice a year um so that's Dalton Baker Productions so that's Renee and Angela and they work in creative industry as well they've both worked for Finders Keepers Market they've run their own creative businesses they've worked for Etsy um they've had a lot of really fantastic experience and so when I was looking for a mentor I think, um, you know, there was definitely a gap in that space of people who knew what I was talking about because, like, so many business mentors that I kind of was looking into, they didn't work in creative industry or they didn't work in events. And so that's kind of the gap that I was looking for. And I came across um, Angela Renee and I just booked a one-off. And then I was like, nope, you're fantastic. And so I still see them regularly. Um, and then they've also now got an, like an online community called Great uh, Make Good Things Happen. So, um, you know, and they're um, also ho- hosting an online symposium later this year for creative community. So I just really love everything that they're all about. And for me, the ability to just pop on, Um, Well, I can't say just pop on. We have to book it in advance. Um, So, you know, to go online and just kind of run through whatever my difficulties are um, and get have them there as a sounding board has been hugely helpful. But I also am a member of Fusion and then also um, a member of Core, which is a subsidiary of Fusion. So the Core um, membership is something that I've gotten a huge amount of value out of because they have Mm. these um, more frequent catch-ups in terms of like um they call it like a core circle and it's actually set every fortnight and I can't get to every single one but by kind of having similar people around you who are just as dedicated to their business as you are to just be like oh hey I'm having this experience and it's 
drive me insane. Has anyone dealt with something similar? How did you get through it? That's been very mm. helpful as well. Mm. It's so important to have that business community around you because often we have a lot of friends that don't run their own businesses and they just don't have a clue and speak to talk about business with them. So, yeah, I think that community is really important. And in terms of community, what about the community you've built with the market? How mm. how does that, that's an awesome achievement. And how does that feel when, you know, the market rolls around and you can see all these people browsing the stalls and even just the stall makers, the community you brought together there? Yeah, it's that make really you feel? fantastic. So, um, you know, we've got the storeholder community when we then have the community of people who come visit the markets. And we've also got like our team. So most of the people who work for me have now been working with me for a number of years. And that includes my casual event staff. So, we've kind of become a little family as well. But then, you know, we've got storeholders who they've been with us since our very first launch event. And I've got some people who I met when I was a storeholder myself. So I've known them for like (laughs) nearly a decade now. And it's like, you're like, oh, you know, you know, they've had kids, they've grown their business to be their full-time source of employment. They've gone on to do these really fantastic things. And for me, that's just what gives me all the warm fuzzies. And um, I just, I, I feel sad that we don't get to see each other more often. So I'm actually working on something a little bit behind the scenes, hoping to launch at the end of this year to, to provide the opportunity to actually get together in person more frequently because, um, you know, we just had our last event before winter and I'm not seeing anyone again until September. And I'm like, no, oh, well, I want to, but I want to see all my friends that I've made. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to fill that gap myself because I'm tired of like <laughs> waiting months to see people over winter. <laughs> Yeah, that's so cool. And um, where are you at the moment? Because I can see you're in a kind of office space. Is that in Applecross? This is in Applecross. So I have an office on site here at Gulligadup Heathcote, which is where the Perth Makers Market runs six times per year. So it's in these beautiful old heritage buildings with these high ceilings. Um, And so we have an office space here, which is really fantastic because we're also surrounded by other creatives as well. So the whole place is a cultural precinct. So you've got artists on site who, um, you know, they work by commission or and they run workshops and they've got, you know, all of these different things that they do, but they're also across industries. So there's videographers, photographers, oil painters, printmakers, um, a candle maker, a textile artist. So there's all kinds of just fantastic people on site here. So you're surrounded by this creative energy, which is just fantastic. And I think it's something that a lot of people miss out on working in creative industry because it can be very isolating. Mm, absolutely. And do you ever still get a chance to do your own creative thing and still craft? Yeah, not as much as I used to, um, but I'm like most creative people I have a lot of things on the go so um I'm I do latch hook rug making and I still make soft toys but those kinds of things I really only do for my kids or my my nephews now but my current obsession is pottery so um I've got a pottery wheel and a kiln and I converted my back patio into a little studio space um and I just have gotten fully obsessed and um I just love getting into those creative zones and it's a really fantastic Mm. way to switch off that part of your brain that doesn't shut Mm. up a lot of the time because Mm. particularly with pottery like I have to focus on what I'm doing or nothing works um Mm. whereas some of the other things I do you know it's a kind of a passive thing that you're doing whilst you're watching tv or you know surrounded by other people so I 
kind of need to make sure that I still have that creative outlet as a way of also supporting my mental health. Because if I don't get that, I notice within myself, I do kind of drop a little bit. And Mm. so by having those opportunities to just get out of my own head and make something and have fun and if it doesn't work out, that's okay. But, you know, it's, it's just a really great way of, you know, looking after myself as well in another space. Absolutely. And what about with your children? Do you encourage them to be creative? Or I mean, as kids, I feel like we're naturally creative and then we have it drummed out of us through school. But yeah, <laughs> what if, yeah. So we, we do what try about- and encourage the kids as much as possible. I've got um, two boys, one of whom is nearly 11 and the other one just turned nine. My nearly 11 year old is definitely more creatively inclined than the nine year old. The nine year old is obsessed with like technology um and he just wants to be gaming he's like a little gamer kid which I don't understand (laughs) or relate to but um you know he likes to come and do pottery with me from time to time my older boy is fantastic with watercolors um and you know some years for Christmas like all he wants is paints and canvas and but like you know they've done embroidery with me and when COVID hit, we all made face masks together so they sat at the sewing machine and did that um yeah and and even if they don't want to do those, you know, I guess what's seen as traditionally creative pursuits, they're creative in other ways. So like building Lego or um, we've been talking about redoing our backyard. They'll sit down and they'll do designs and they kind of like workshop ideas with us and, um, you know, plants, planting things or, um, you know, even just building something in Minecraft is still creative, even though it's a game and I don't understand why they're upset. <laughs> I, I can't relate to it. But, you know, they have all of those different creative pursuits. But I really love it when we can find a way of doing things together. So, like, I had a time where I sat and I worked on my rug and my almost 11-year-old, he sat and he did some watercolour painting. And now my husband and I are fighting over the completed artwork because both of us want it. And so, <laughs> <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> yeah. So it's really great that we can do those things together. Absolutely. That's beautiful. And you touched on briefly about making masks in COVID. Let's talk about COVID a little bit. Did that affect your business? Yeah, we shut down overnight. So working in the events industry, um, we actually were running a market the day the lockdown was announced. So March 13th, 2020. And we were in the city, we were setting up, we were there and it was announced that the lockdown was coming into effect on the Monday. So obviously we still were able to run our event and we did because we were already on site. We were bumping Mm. everybody in. Um, Mm. But that did have a, um, an impact on the crowd. Did many people come? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Everyone was starting to get really frightened, which was fair. Um, Mm. And so we then had to cancel everything. So we shut down overnight. Um, Thankfully there was job keeper, but it, um, it did mean like I had a full-time admin assistant working for me at the time. I had to cut her back down to part-time I stopped paying myself um, and luckily we were in a financial position that I was able to do that. Like I didn't have to go and find another job. I was the full-time parent. We pulled the kids out of school and everything. Um, But by August that year, we were able to start getting up and running again. And so what we did is, um, you know, everything that had been running that we'd taken bookings and payments from storeholders for, we gave them options in terms of they could, transfer that fee to an event later in the year or we could offer partial refunds just because we were in a position that like, we couldn't afford full refunds for certain events, mm. some events, you know, that were further in advance, we were able to do that. But, you know, for some events, we'd already, you know, paid for everything. Paid, yeah. Um, 
or we then offered alternative services. So um, I do a bit of product photography. So we we gave them the option of, you know, come drop your products off, we'll do product photography. You want a social media audit, we'll do a social media audit for you. Um, you wow. want a mentoring session, we can do a mentoring session. So we just, we, we pr- tried to provide alternative ways to support our community. But yeah, we, we shut down overnight. It was, it was really, really hard. And then it was the thing of, you know, this, the person who worked full time for me, she had to go down to part time. And then when JobKeeper ran out, we had to let her go. She had to go find another job. Um, she's back working for me now, part time again. <laughs> Great. Um, so we've got her back. But um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a really devastating time. And mm. it was one of those things where there was no end in sight. And even now, Two years later, I operate everything with contingency upon contingency in case we have to cancel mm. events because, you know, we get asked now, oh, you must be so relieved that all the restrictions are eased and you can go back to normal. I'm like, no, I'm operating on the assumption that we're going to have to shut down again. Mm. Like I just am not ever going to, I don't know that I'm ever going to feel comfortable until mm. we know long-term what's going to be going on with COVID. And the reality is that COVID just might be a part of our lives now where you know, every once in a while there's a lockdown or like if there's a new variant, you you just don't know. I know. It's so hard to plan for the uncertainty of it all. Yeah. But I really admire the fact that you, you know, you offered your storeholders the opportunity to, you know, have product photography or social media audits or whatever it was. You're really always thinking about the customer at the end of the day, which is really shows you run a great business. How important is the customer to you and do, you, do most of your storeholders return time and time again? Yeah, we do have those really loyal people who return time and time again and, you know, we have those people who sometimes they just come, they do one event a year but they only want to come and do one event a year with us. Um, a big part of everything that I do is it's all about the storeholder. If they don't have a good experience, then there's no point in doing what I do. So, um, there are obviously a lot of things with what I do that are beyond my control. So, you know, whether or not people turn up on the day, I can follow the exact same formula every single time. And there are so many factors beyond my control that I can't, you know, I can't tell you if we're going to get the same crowds from one event to the next. I'd love to say that we get the same crowds every event, but sometimes we don't. Most of the time we do, but if it's a rainy day, the crowds drop. If it's a hot day, the crowds drop. If the grand final is on, the crowds drop. You know, there's all of these different things um, that go into it. And then even if you do bring a crowd, there's no guarantee they're shopping that day. Um, Or, you know, they could be looking for a different kind of product than what you buy. So for us, we really want to also be able to support our community in that, um, you know, it's, it's not just, reliant on the event itself so we always try and talk to our storeholders about you have to view attending a market as part of a wider marketing strategy it is not just about sales on the day and if you view it as just sales on the day you don't end up having as much long-term success so Mm. you know we just try and do all of those things and so we've had times over the years where we've run workshops where we've had an accountant come in we've had a copywriter come in we have run product photography workshops um but also within our community, we do see a little bit of a reluctance to invest in yourself, um, which is a mindset thing that, you know, we just try and chip away at and get people to see that if they invest in themselves, they do definitely get a return on that investment. But it's a it's a cash poor community that I work with. And so we try and find some ways to support everybody without it costing them an arm and a leg. Mm. 
And um, you talk about it being a mindset thing. And I know that you do do some one-on-one coaching in creativity and is it mainly helping storeholders or who do you work with in that regard? Anyone in creative small business. So um, I kind of view it as like, um, yes, I have a lot of experience working with the storeholder community, but if you run any business kind of in a creative field, you come across the same hurdles as somebody who is a maker. Um, So I have the experience now. I've built a brand from the ground up. I've actually done it twice. Um, and I've got experience with systems and processes and outsourcing and building a team and all of those things. So, you know, if you're someone who feels like that knowledge would be helpful, then definitely reach out. It's not a huge part of what I do. It's a small part of what I do um, just because I am very committed to only working school hours. So I have a finite amount of time that I can give, which is why we're, we're working towards building um a community that people can kind of sign up as a membership to, um, which is, uh, I think, what it will probably be more beneficial for creative small businesses long term because then they can kind of pick and choose where they need to grow their knowledge mm, and access things long term. Yeah, well, keep yeah, uh, yeah. keep your eye on things. Uh, <laughs> I will. <laughs> I'm hoping to launch at the end of the year, but you know, it's awesome. It might be next year, but um, it is something that I definitely see within the storeholder community. You know, um, there's a lot of educational resources that are around and available, but they're not geared to people in the creative industry. Like you, it, and, and sometimes it's written in a way that there's like, a, you know, a lot of jargon that you don't understand. And so sometimes you, you, you just need somebody who speaks the same language, who has mm. similar experiences or, um, you know, isn't fitting the corporate mold and like I I don't fit the corporate mold anymore like I have rainbow colored Mm. hair and I'm covered in tattoos and I mostly wear rainbow clothing and um you know um I mean for crying out loud my office we we have office slippers and blankets like it's just (laughs) I love it yeah and so um I think just having the ability to just to speak to people who speak the same language as you and mm. and who don't feel the need to not talk down to you but like mm. oh I'm the expert and I know so much more than you like I I think that just it puts a lot of people off and so mm. finding a way to provide those resources to people and then they can they can grow in whatever way suits them best is what we're really looking to do Mm. And in your experience, what do you think is the number one thing that creatives struggle with? Putting their face out there. Ah, interesting. So I think for a lot of creative small businesses, or at least the people that I work with, it it tends to attract a lot of introverts. Um, Mm. And the most scary thing for people is putting your face out there or um, being afraid that you don't know what to say or... Um, that you're going to get ridiculed or that you always have to be hugely presentable. Um, And so that's a hugely terrifying thing. And also um, for some people, it's the business aspect of things. The the Mm. creative small businesses that I work with, for so many of them, what they really, all all they want to do is make their stuff, which is fair. I can totally relate to that. If I could just spend, you know, all of my time making stuff, that would be a really fantastic way to live. But the reality is that that's not going to pay the bills. You have to Mm. be able to support that aspect of what you do with so many other things. And so um, 
having the knowledge to do that and then also realizing when you shouldn't do things yourself. Just because you can do something yourself doesn't mean that you should be the person doing it. I'm great at social media. I've done it for seven years. Um, I still am involved in our social media, but you know what? I don't want to do it. Anytime I sit down to plan content now, I get a brain fog and I don't want to do it. I'll, I have to kind of pick and choose where I operate within the social media sphere. And so I outsource it. Um, mm. I say outsource. Insource is probably a better word. We have somebody on our mm-hmm. team who does it. And so, um, but it is also the very first thing I got rid of on my plate. Mm-hmm. I outsourced. I had a mm-hmm. VA um, based in Perth so that they could actually meet me and come to events and learn what we were all about. Um, and I still do have a lot of involvement, but, you know, I recognise that that's not the best use of my time. That's not the best thing for me to be doing. I get five hours a day to work while my kids are at school. I need to be as good with my time as I can be. Um, so I got to pick and choose where I spend my time. And you know what mm-hmm. is not a good use of my time? Staring at a computer, figuring out what time of day to post a social media thing. <laughs> oh my gosh, I could so relate to that. We just outsourced for the first time this year and I'm like, why didn't I do this sooner? Years ago. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just I was so annoyed at myself. But oh, just to have that social media burden just lifted oh, yeah so and there are people who just like they they get off on it it's like yeah, so Nic- yeah. Nicola who is our team member who does our social media she loves it she just she falls down the rabbit hole of like content creation and you know ha- hashtag optimization and all of these different things and I'm like yeah it takes all kinds but like that yeah that's not my idea <laughs> not you that's, yeah. no <laughs> I'm happy to film a video um that's fine and then I will hand her the video and she can do whatever needs to be done with it um but no I don't I don't want to no. <laughs> Yeah, totally get you, totally feel you there. And what about in terms of the online space, what about, you know, people come to markets but they're like, oh, maybe I should just sell online. How does it differ between selling online and actually selling in a market? And do people make more money online than they do in a market? How do you feel about those two audiences? I think audiences, there's a need for both, to be honest. Um, mostly because it's a fantastic opportunity to do research when you're at a market, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, I have a cheat sheet that I would say is a, a useful resource, but basically, you know, it's so that you can kind of track, you know, who's buying from you, what time of day are they buying? What kind of products are they buying? Are they shopping by themselves? Are they coming with families? Are they buying for the, themselves or are they buying as a gift? Um, what is your most common selling product that day? Um, you know, there's a lot of research that you can gain and you can also speak directly to your customer and have a conversation and form that connection and ask them for their feedback in person. And one of those things that, you know, Getting that customer feedback, yeah, sure, you can do it online through surveys, but you're not going to get as much response as you would in person. And you might find you get a really different response as well. Mm. So I definitely think that there is a need for both. But obviously, you can't be at a market all the time. And for a lot of people, having a bricks and mortar store is outside of the realms of possibility or something that they don't want um and so you go well then that's when you do it online and then it becomes a conversation of do you have your own standalone website or do you join somebody else's do you join a platform like etsy there can be benefits to both some people i know actually do both 
Um, but I, I definitely think, think that there is a place for both selling online and in person. Now, that's not saying that you need to be at a market every weekend. Um, you can choose to do one a year and that's your opportunity to do all these things. It's a really great place to do a product launch. It's a really great place to do a special. It's an opportunity to grow your audience and grow your brand um, and get lots of content as well. So, I yeah, I definitely would say that there's a place for both. Mm. And how important, I mean, this is just kind of a personal question because I'm interested, but how important is the way the stall looks oh, to passers-by? Massive. Yeah. So um, what you have to remember is that when you're attending an event, you are representing your brand. Um, mm. And brand identity is such an intangible thing. So I think a lot of people get confused as to what a brand is and they think it's just like your logo and your font and your colors and all of those sorts of things, but it's not. Your brand is how your business makes someone else feel. Um, Mm. And the way that you set up your stall and the way you present yourself, the way you dress, the way that you use your body language, all of this is part of your brand identity. Um, and so many times, you know, you'll go to an event and you'll be like, oh, well, this person says that they're having a bad day, but you walk past their stall and they're just folded and their arms are crossed and they're like looking really grumpy and they're hunched in the corner, they're sitting down, they're buried in their phone. Of course, no one's going to come into your stall and talk to you. You're putting them off. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily anything to do with your product, but if you look unpleasant or miserable, then people, they pick that up. Like, and, and then like subliminal body language, even just folding your arms, that t- sends a message. So, you know, it's, it's, it can be a simple thing to take your hands, put them in your pocket, put them behind your back, um, you know, and then it's opening yourself up to be more inviting. But not only that, if you think about like if you're at a market and it's a busy event, you can have lots of people walking by your stall. And if you have just everything laying flat on a table, no one can see what you have. They kind of Mm. glance in. They don't really see anything. They continue on. That doesn't mean they're not necessarily interested in your product. They just can't see what it is that you do. There's nothing to invite them into your space, to invite them to have a conversation. So, you know, it is important that you think about all of these different things. And then also you want to think about, your display needing to complement your products. So if you sell like a high-end luxury item, so say, for example, it's like a beautiful artwork, jewelry. right? Or jewellery, yeah. oh, yeah. right? Um, yeah. But like it's not um, – so you, say, for example, it's like um, it's high-end, really polished, really refined, nothing is out of place. But then if you have like Hessian bags and juke mm. string, that then jars with your product. So you want like mm. your display to be reflecting your product to the best of its ability. Um, so you do have to think about those things and you need to tie it all back into that brand identity as well. Oh, so true. So many good pointers there. <laughs> and in terms of hiring your staff as well, did, do you when you hire team members, do you make sure that they kind of align with your brand and how do you go about doing that? Not necessarily aligning with my brand, um, but aligning with our values and ethics and morals. Mm. So, for example, Nick, who I referred to earlier, who works in our social media, she calls herself beige. She's like, I'm a rainbow and she is beige. And so, you know, (laughs) she feels like she doesn't fit in with us. And we're like, no, that's like, that's not what it's all about. It's about, you know, we all have similar beliefs in terms of, the business and wanting to see the business succeed and see our community succeed and thrive. So, you know, it's, it's making sure that you're, it's, it comes back down to those brand values, um, making mm. sure that the people on your team 
align with those brand values and they're going to uphold them because if you have like, so for us, us, sustainability is a big part of everything that we do. And then if I have a team member who's just like, oh, no, screw the planet. Let's just, you know, put plastic everywhere. I'm like, well, that's um, not okay. That's not a reflection of our brand. And either I need to be able to educate them as to why it's important that they reflect our brand values or, you know, they, they are not a good fit for our team. So, you know, when we go through all of the hiring and stuff, like we've got three team members who work in the office plus a, con- a subcontractor who works with us as well. We're all, you know, fairly creative individuals um, or alternatively we understand the need for the creative community. And then in terms of our on-the-day event team, a lot of those team members come to us through people who already work with us. So it'll be like, oh, yeah, we need to add to our casual pool and, and someone I know who already works with me will be like, oh, yeah, I've got a mate. She'd be a great fit. And so I often have people who work for me. Like, so, for example, at the event we just had on the weekend, finally met a team member who's worked two events and I've not met her in person before, didn't interview her over the phone. Um, <laughs> she she came to me through someone else who I know and trust and I know is going to bring somebody who's a great fit for us. So, um, you know, it's also having the trust in the people you already have. Mm. So do you mainly find your team members through word of mouth, would you say? Word of mouth for our casual pool predominantly, um, but in terms mm. of our office, um, well, I guess kind of word of mouth as well. So it's been a little bit of recruitment and then, you know, both of the people who job share our admin role, um, one of whom is my best friend, and uh, I met her because my husband's best mate is her husband and so um, (laughs) we kind of met that way and then she started working for us as a casual actually both of my admin girls started working for us as casuals and then when I was recruiting um, I made them go through the formal interview process and the formal application Mm. process because you might think that someone's a good fit but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best person for the job so like I Mm. did go through that whole hiring process I made them submit their resumes I called their references we did in-person interviews it was all very awkward and weird but we did it anyway (laughs) because as much as I love them and they're great on event days you still want you still have to put the business first and so you still need to you know go through all of those steps and do all your due diligence and and you go into it knowing that you know there's a possibility it doesn't work out Mm. yeah it's smart like some people would say don't hire your friends because it could end badly but it sounds like in your case it's been good it's worked out but we did go into it and I said to her I was like I don't know how I feel about this it's going to be really weird. You are my best friend. Like we, we refer to each other as our wives. Like she's, she's my <laughs> wife. And, um, you know, one day if our husbands pass away, we're going to become old ladies and share a house together or something. And um, <laughs> Love it. like when I, when I talk about she's my best friend, like we have matching tattoos. So, uh, <laughs> but when we started, we had a really lengthy conversation about it. Even before she put mm. a formal application in, I said, you know, I don't want to ruin our friendship. And I also have to make sure that the business comes first. And she's like, look, Erin, if it doesn't work out and you have to fire me, that's fine. I'm not going to be offended. I know that this could go pear-shaped. But we also do try and have those divides of like when we're in the office, it's work time. And mm. then uh, like when we're not in the office, not that we don't have fun and we don't have those conversations and all those sorts of things, but, you know, it it, it is try to have those boundaries. And I'll have times where I'm on the phone to her and I'm like, 
okay, office errand is done now. It's friend errand now. Hey, how's it going? And how's your daughter? And, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. It's just fine. You're just more professional, I suppose, in the office. Well, not really. I mean, everyone got a birthday <laughs> last dance this year. So um, it's, <laughs> we're not a professional work environment, but we, we, we get things done. But like, it is still. Sounds like know, a fun work environment. Well, we try. We try. Um, <laughs> but it does mean that, you know, it, it is like when we're working, it's working. And when we're not working, yeah. it's not. So it's. Yeah, it's, it's finding a balance. Yeah. So what would you say is the most rewarding thing about running your own business? Hmm. For me, I think it's seeing success in others and knowing that you've oh. helped um, build a community. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who they started out with us. We were their very first event for their business, um, the very first place that they launched. And now they run their business full time. And, Amazing. you know, seeing that and know that you've had a part to play in that journey that they've been on, even if it's just a really small part and, you know, hearing feedback from our storeholders saying that like we run the most organized events and our team are the most supportive and we regularly have storeholders who are like, we just want to come and work with you. Like your girls look like they're just having <laughs> so much fun and like seeing all of those things come together. Like for me, that's that's the most rewarding aspect of it. Amazing. If an entrepreneur approached you and they wanted to start a small business, what would be the golden nugget piece of advice that you would give them? Be passionate and know that it's going to be hard. Don't just mm. start a business for the sake of starting a business. You have to believe in what you're doing and um, you have to do your research before you start. And I have an example that I use for this and it's candles. Um, now, that being said, I love candles. There's nothing against candles. I always have a candle burning in my office and at home. Um, I'm fully obsessed. It's genuinely a problem. But <laughs> anyone can pour a candle. Anyone can buy a jar and pour a candle. And so you and and it's a saturated market. So you have to know what is your point of difference. Why should people buy from you? Um, you know, especially because like for candle suppliers. Um, you know, they're, they're getting a lot of materials that they're using from the same location. So the scents are similar, the jars are similar, all of those sorts of things. So it becomes about your brand. It becomes about your values. And you have to be passionate about your what you're doing. Otherwise, it can just crush you that you put all this time and effort into something. So for me, I always say that if you're going to go on this entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey, you have to truly believe in what you're doing. You have to be passionate about it because there are going to be late nights. There are going to be long days. There are going to be sleepless nights. There are going to be times where you try things and they're going to fail. Um, and if you don't have that passion and drive behind you, then there's no point. All you're setting yourself up is for is disappointment and heartbreak. So be passionate. So Yes, yes. I was like, I had so to find true. a way to make that more uplifting. Otherwise, it sounded so crushing. <laughs> but like, it is. Be passionate. And, and, and that's, it is. that's like, and this is where I use candles as an example. It's like, I am a lover mm. of candles, but why should I buy your candle? You know, mm -hmm, what is it mm -hmm. about your candle that's special? Mm -hmm. And I think if you are truly passionate, then when the hurdles are thrown your way, you'll keep going. Yeah. You know, and it's that's the where, drive that pushes you. Yeah. And that's where you're going to, you know, instead of just getting to that hurdle and going, oh, this is too hard, you're going to work through it you're going to find a way over the hurdle or under the hurdle or around the hurdle um but if you don't have that passion and drive that's you know that's what you fall down 
Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, thank you so much. Where can everyone find you on the socials, Erin? Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Erin Makes Consulting, Perth Makers Market, Perth Up Market, and then um, we're also online. If you Google us, we pop up. So we've got websites for everything as well. But um, yes, we. If you just Google us, we shall we shall appear. <laughs> thanks so much Erin that was so inspirational to talk to you and well done on the business you're doing a great job oh thanks so much Carmen it's been an absolute it's been a fantastic time chatting to you and uh, I hope to keep listening (laughs) you're certainly going to inspire some people thank you so much thank you for listening to the committed creative podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode and learned at least one thing that will help you stay on the creative path If you liked it, please subscribe as there's plenty more to come. And we'd love it if you could leave us a review if you found the podcast worthwhile. And if you didn't, please send us your feedback. We're all ears. You can check us out online at redplatypuscreative.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at redplatypuscreative. Remember, you are not alone in your creativity and you can make money from your creative pursuits. See you next time when we speak to another creative mind that's committed to making their way work. Here's to going all in and becoming a committed creative.